Corinthians chapter 5. There are two motivating factors that drive us in making the decisions that we make in life. And these are fundamental to our fallen nature as human beings, so we all experience them, and those two motivations are peer pressure and selfishness. The fear of man and the love of self. When I make a decision naturally, the first two things I think about are what do others want and what do I want? So it's not surprising in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 to 17, that we find two new motives for our new life in Christ, and those two new motives are in opposition to our natural motives. The first is in verse 11, the fear of the Lord. And the second is in verse 14, the love of Christ. Instead of being influenced by the fear of man, we are to be motivated by the fear of the Lord. We are to have that awe and respect for Him that really culminates in an event that's going to happen in the future that he describes in verse 10, and that is the judgment seat of Christ, that one day I will be manifest in His presence. And the fear of the Lord should motivate me to do three things that we talked about last week. The first is, in verse 11, Rather than being persuaded by men, we should be persuading men. The second is also in verse 11. Rather than wait for the judgment seat of Christ for me to be manifest, I am to be manifest right now in His presence. I'm to have the judgment seat of Christ every day before the Lord as I'm honest before Him. And then thirdly, as we see at the end of verse 12, rather than focusing on the world, what the world focuses on, which is outward appearance, we're to focus on what the Lord looks at, and that's the heart. And then this morning, we want to take a look at the second motivation, which is the love of Christ. Instead of being motivated by selfishness, the love of self, what I want, I am to be motivated by the love of Christ. Now, I set up your outline this week in the form of a pop quiz. It's my favorite kind of test. It's an open book test. The only problem is two of the answers aren't in the book. They're in your heart. So to take this test accurately, you've got to be honest. You've got to be manifest before God. And so what I want to do is open the book this morning. We're going to look at two verses, verses 14 and 15. And as we look at these two verses, I want you to answer three simple questions. And to make them even more simple, I've made them multiple choice. Question number one, what controls me? Question number two, who died on the cross? And question number three, who do I live for? Now, I challenge you this morning not to take this lightly. Teachers used to say in school, you know, we're going to have a pop quiz and this only counts as 5% of your grade, so don't worry. Well, this little pop quiz counts as 100% of your grade. Your answer to these questions has eternal 
significance. In fact, to answer these questions correctly, you have to have a concept of who God is, who you are, what love is, and what life is all about. So this is a comprehensive pop quiz. And so we're going to open the book, look at what the book has to say, and then at the end of the message, I'm going to come back to your answers to this pop quiz. Here's what the book says with a capital B. Verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. For the love of Christ controls us. That word controls, or your translation may say compels or constrains, is a word that means to hold in its grip, to confine, to secure. It's the same word used in Luke 22 to describe how the soldiers held Jesus in custody. Now you say, well, why would Paul use a word like this to describe what the love of Christ does? Well, because that's what the love of Christ has to do. You see, apart from Christ, you are controlled by the love of self. You are controlled by selfishness. And the love of Christ has to come in and take hold of you and overpower your selfishness so that you are then transformed into one who walks in the love of Christ. Maybe that's what the hymn writer had in mind when he wrote these words, O love that will not let me go. It's a love that controls. You say, well, what does he mean by the love of Christ? Is he talking about Christ's love for me? Is he talking about my love for Christ? Is he talking about Christ's love as it flows out through me to other people? Well, let me say something that I don't say very often. And that is it doesn't matter that much. Because you see, all three of those constitute the love of Christ. And they are really inseparable. In fact, you cannot have one phase of that without having the other phases. And let me just show you that by showing you another chapter. Look, at, look with me at 1 John chapter 4. Keep your finger in 2 Corinthians 5. 1 John chapter 4. A lot of great love verses in 1 John. Chapter 4, verse 10. He says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Love of God does not originate in me. It originates in in God. I didn't start loving Him. I didn't just go along one day and decide, you know what, I'm going to start loving God. No, love begins with God. It originates with God. It starts with Him. In fact, there's a great verse in Romans 8, 16. It says, The Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we're the children of God. God's Spirit 
witnesses to us inside and tells us we're his children. And how do we know that we're the children of God? Well, if you look in Romans chapter 8 and verse 15, it says, because we have received a spirit by which we cry, Abba, Father. The evidence to me that I'm saved is because I call God Daddy. Prior to salvation, I used to use his name in vain. Prior to salvation, maybe you called him the man upstairs. Maybe you called him God, generic God. Uh, maybe you even thought you had a relationship with him and you called him your heavenly father, but there was no affection in that. But at the point of salvation, guess what? The one that I always ran from, I now draw near. And I'm able to call him that affectionate term, Abba, which is the first word that a child would learn in that context, in that language, like Dada to God. It originates with him. My love for him starts with God. And then look at verse 19 of 1 John 4. He says, we love because he first loved us. Which tells me our love for other people doesn't start with us either. We love others because God first loved us. God awakens my dormant heart, not only to love him, but now for the first time to be able to truly love other people with his unconditional love. Romans 5.5 5 puts it this way. The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. God has poured out his love into our hearts and it's to flow out to other people. And so it's God's love as he shows it to me. It's God's love as I show it back to him. And it's God's love as it flows out to other people. It's God's love as I receive it as I return it, as I reflect it. It's all his love. In fact, if you look in chapter 4 again, he summarizes it in verse 12. He says, No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. Nobody's seen God, but guess what? They get a glimpse of God when you do what? When you love other people. Because that's God's love showing up in you. And then notice what else he says in verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Or that word perfected means completed. God's love is completed in you when you love other people. Which tells me that God's love is incomplete in you until you start loving others. It originates with him loving me. I reciprocate by loving him. And then I share his love with other people. And in all three phases, it's all the love of Christ. And that's our motivation. That's what controls us as Christians. Now come back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we find that the love of Christ is linked to an event as well. Just as the fear of the Lord is linked to an event, the judgment seat of Christ. So the love of Christ is linked to an event, and that event is the cross of Christ. The fear of the Lord is stimulated by the knowledge that one day in the future, I will stand before the Lord and be made manifest. 
the love of Christ is stimulated by the knowledge that one day in the past, He hung on a cross. And if you look carefully at Scripture, you will find that the love of Christ, the love of God, is always associated with the cross. And that's why love is often in the past tense. He loved us and gave Himself for us because that is the ultimate expression of love at the cross of Christ. Now, what happened at the cross? Well, Paul says in this passage, you need to reach two conclusions about the cross that will enable Christ's love to control you. If Christ's love is going to control you, you have to reach two conclusions. What are those two conclusions? Number one, that Christ died for us. Now, that's the Sunday school answer. Everybody's going to get that one right. Anybody that's been to Sunday school one time knows the answer to this question. Who died on the cross? Jesus. Look at verse 14 again. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all. He died for us. He died as our substitute. He died in our place. And that is the ultimate expression of love. John 15, 13, Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. 1 John 3.16 says, We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us. How do we know love? That's the demonstration of it. That's the definition of it, that He laid down His life for us. Ephesians 5.25 says, Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. People are always saying, well, how do I know that God loves me? You know by simply looking back at the cross and seeing what He did because that was the most that He could give out of love for you. Like the little boy who asked, how much, how much does Jesus love you? And He said, this much. That's how much He gave His life on the cross for you. Romans 8, 5, 8 says, But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners and undeserving, Christ died for us. Now I hope you know today that God's love is always the same. He loves you just as much today as He did yesterday as He will tomorrow. He could never love you more and you could never do anything to make him love you less. And understand this as well. He didn't love you more at Calvary. It was just that was the opportunity to demonstrate the ultimate expression of his love. Now let me say something that's very important here. You will not comprehend the love of Christ until you comprehend the fear of the Lord. You will not understand the love of redemption until you understand the fear of judgment. Until I acknowledge the righteous justice of God, until I acknowledge His holy hatred of sin, until I acknowledge and agree that I deserve to die, I will never appreciate the fact that Jesus died for me. 
The Bible says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, Jesus experienced that terrifying thing. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God, and Jesus fell into those hands of judgment. Why? Because he loves us. He loves you, and he loves me. I don't know about you, but that motivates me. That motivates me. He loved me so much that he gave me his all. And that motivates me to want to give back in love to him. But there's a second conclusion at the cross. And this one isn't so widely understood. And that is that we died with Christ. Look at verse 14 again. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Now this is essential to understand. The love of Christ will not control you until you reach this conclusion about the cross. And the conclusion is this, not just that Christ died for me, but that I died with Christ. The old song asked the question, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Was I there? I was on the cross. That's what it says. It says, one died for all, therefore all died. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Now what does that mean when it says you died on the cross? What does it mean to say, I died at Calvary? Well, let me give you three aspects of that. It's, it's true positionally, personally, and practically. First of all, it's true positionally. From God's perspective, God sees me as being in Christ. So everything that happened to Christ is true of me because I'm in Christ. The Bible says in Romans 6 that I died with Christ. And it also says that I was buried with Christ. In Ephesians 2, it says I was raised with Christ and I am seated with Christ in heaven. In fact, Romans chapter 8 and verse 30 tells me from God's perspective, I am already glorified, present tense. Wow. The last verse of chapter 5, if we ever get to it, says that we have the righteousness of Christ. I am just as righteous as Jesus Christ. In Christ, I died, I was buried, I rose, I ascended, I'm seated in heaven, I'm glorified, I'm just as righteous as Jesus, positionally. You need to understand that. But not only is there a positional reality to this, there's a personal reality to this. And that means the person that I used to be has died. As a believer, I am not the person that I used to be. In Galatians 5.24, Paul says, We have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He says in Galatians 6.14, through, through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, I have been crucified to the world. He says in Romans chapter 6, I have died to sin and I am freed from sin. Personally, I have died, which means I am no longer a slave to sin. That slavery has been broken. I am dead. Now, what's true of a dead person? 
they don't have any reflexes. So if I'm a dead person, I shouldn't be reacting to the world nudging me and saying, come over here, because I'm dead. I'm dead to sin. Now, what is sin? Sin, in its simplest concept, is selfishness. And what is selfishness? The love of self. So I have died to the love of self so that I can now be controlled by what? The love of Christ. It's true positionally. It's true personally. It's also true practically. Look at, look at Romans chapter 6. I'm going to have you look over there just a second. I won't keep you here long. I'm just going to show you something, and I want you to come back to it later and look at it. Romans chapter 6 is a chapter that talks all about the importance of us being in Christ and what happened to Christ happened to us. And if you look at verse 6, there's three words I want you to mark in your Bible if you never have. The first is in verse 6, and that's the word knowing. It says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. The second word I want you to mark is in verse 11. Even so, consider, the word consider, yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ. And then the third word I want you to underline is in verse 13, where it says, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present, underline that word present, yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. Know, consider, and present. There's the formula for practical Christian living. Know what? Know that I have died with Christ and risen with Him. That's positional. Consider, that's a faith word, consider yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God. And then here's the practical word, present. Stop presenting your body and the members of your body as instruments to sin like you have all your life. Stop doing that and start practically giving your life, your body, to God as those alive from the dead and those who have died to sin. That's real simple. Know it because God said it. Consider it by faith to be true and then walk it out in your life by giving your body, presenting your body on a daily basis to the Lord. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 20, Paul says, If you had died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Basically saying, if you're dead to the world, act like it. Be practical about it. Why do you live like you're living in the world? Why do you listen to the, what the world is telling you to do when you're dead to the world? And then a few verses later in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1, he says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have died to this world. You have risen with Christ. Where should your affections be? Not on the things of this world, but on Christ who is in heaven. I was looking at that 
verse this week and I saw that I had written something in the margin of my Bible next to this passage. And here's what I wrote. Christ is in me. I'm in Christ. He's in heaven. And I can't wait. That should be our reaction. I'm dead to sin. I'm dead to this world. I'm dead to my flesh. I'm still living in this flesh carton, this, this physical body, but I can't wait to be where I'm really at, and that is with Christ in heaven. I'm already there positionally. Positionally, I've already died, been buried, risen, ascended, glorified with Christ. I'm seated in heaven with Him. I need to start acting like who I am in Christ. And so the cross not only marked Christ's death for me, it marked my death with Christ. It really marked the end of me. I'm dead. When I came to know the Lord at, at age 20, I had a girlfriend. And uh, she noticed the change in my life rather quickly. And she wrote me a letter after a few weeks. And on the letter, she wrote a picture of a tombstone and put my name on it. And she said, the Danny Green that I knew is dead. And I thought, yes. She's getting what a lot of Christians aren't getting. That the old me is dead. It's gone. I'm a new me in Christ. And there's no reason for me to be acting like the old me. Because it has no power over me anymore. I'm a new creature in Christ. And when I come to that conclusion about the cross, that not only did Jesus die, but I died, then the love of Christ controls me and motivates me. And what does the love of Christ motivate me to do? It's real simple in verse 15. And He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. There's two sides to it. Stop living for yourself. That's all natural. That comes natural. You don't have to work out. You don't have to teach your kids how to be selfish. They can teach you a thing or two. It comes natural to be selfish. If you don't think you're selfish, who do you look for first in a group picture? I want to make sure I don't look too bad, that I didn't embarrass myself. What's the world tell us? Every man for himself. What's the world tell us? Look out for number one. Who's number one? Me. That comes natural. He says that we need to stop living for ourselves. And do what? Start living for Him. No longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. See, the love of Christ gives me a new purpose. My purpose is no longer, what do I want? My purpose is, what does He want? My purpose is no longer, I love me so much, I want to do everything to please me. My new purpose is, I love Him so much. I want to do whatever it takes to please Him. I heard about a missionary 
nurse in Asia who was bandaging the wounds of a leper. And a tourist was there looking on and, and, and looking in on the nursing facility there and saw this woman touching this leper and nursing his wounds. And he made the comment, I wouldn't do that for a million dollars. And she quickly said, I wouldn't either. But the love of Christ constrains me. You see, the love of Christ controls me in such a way that I want to be his hands in this world, doing things that naturally would be repulsive to me naturally that don't elevate me and exalt me, but things that humble me and exalt Christ because I love him. And that only makes sense when you understand verse 14. Because what does verse 14 tell us? He died for me. He made the ultimate expression of love for me. He laid down his life for me. And so that motivates me to want to lay down my life for him and for others. And verse 14 also tells me that I died with him. I'm dead. Now, I hope you realize that that points out the value of my life apart from Christ. I am worthless apart from Christ. I produce nothing of value apart from, from Christ. You want... God to evaluate and assess your life. He thought so much of your life that he nailed you to the cross. That's how valuable your life is lived for you. So as a believer, who should I be living for? I'm wasting my life if I'm going to live for me. I'm wasting my life if I'm going to do what the world tells me to do. I'm to be motivated by the love of Christ and controlled by the love of Christ to please Him. Now, let's go back to the pop quiz. And I wrote it in the first person because it's personal. You don't turn it into me. I just want you to take the test. Question number one, what controls me? There are only two options. The love of me or the love of Christ? When I make a decision, what do I take into consideration first? What I want or what Christ wants? Is it all about me or is it all about Him? What's your answer to question one? Question two, who died on the cross? A, Christ? B, me? C, all of the above? This is the book answer. All of the above. Now, if you're not a believer here today, you can't say that yet. Until you surrender your life to Christ, you're not identified with Christ until you come into relationship with Him by faith alone. And then question three. Who do I live for? 
A, me, or B, Christ. And you might notice there's no C, all of the above, because that's not an option. I can't live for me and Jesus. We've got our own thing going. It's me or him, because he doesn't share his throne as Lord with me. Now, if your answer to one and three is A, that tells me that you don't understand question two. It's that simple. You have to understand question two. You have to understand the cross in order to respond the right way to these questions before the Lord. Because at the cross, He died for you because He loved you so much. And at the cross, you died so that you are now free from selfishness and free from self-love. And when you understand the cross, then you will understand what true love is and be controlled by the love of Christ. And you will understand what life is because life is to be lived for Him. Now, it's fitting that we're going to have communion today. We're going to do what Jesus told us to do. Why did he tell us to remember me over and over and over again? Because we're so forgetful of the cross. We need to return to the cross on a regular basis and remember what happened there. And so as we come back to the cross in communion today, I want to remind you, it's not only about what Jesus did for us. It's about what God did to us at the cross. Not only did Jesus die for us, but we died to ourselves. And we died to this world. I love Paul's words when he said in Galatians chapter 6, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world is crucified to me and I to the Jesus isn't the only one who died on the cross. If I'm in Christ, I died there as well. And as we take communion today, let's evaluate our hearts. Let's evaluate our responses to these questions this morning. And let's have our own little judgment seat as we get honest before the Lord and let him make us into the people that he's truly called us to be. We're going to pray. Communion is set up at stations. If you're not a member of this church, you're welcome to participate. It's not our supper. It's the Lord's Supper. But the Bible does tell you to examine yourself and then eat. So as the praise team comes, comes back and sings, you examine your heart. You get honest before the Lord. You be manifest before Him. And then come and partake of the bread and cup, which reminds us of His body and His shed for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the cross. And Father, we so like to identify with the fact that Jesus died for us. But this morning in your word, we're reminded that not only did Jesus die for us, but we died as well. 
And Lord, as we come to the cross this morning and remember what you did for us, we pray that we might be challenged afresh by the love of Christ, a love that we're so undeserving of, that he showed so unconditionally and so freely that he gave his total life for us. And Lord, as we respond to that, I pray that we might be motivated by that love and also by the fact that that love frees us from ourselves to be able to walk in newness of life, to be able to walk in obedience to you. And Lord, as we prepare our hearts and take communion today, I pray that you truly might minister to us and show us who you are and who we are in the light of the cross. We thank you in Jesus.